Hello, everyone, and welcome back this week. So I took a week off, and it was because I had a comedy show going on and just too much outside of this, so I needed a break. It was good, but it's nice to be back with a new show as well. I really love this interview because of a couple reasons. One, and I mentioned it at the front of the podcast as well, the recording part. Well, this is a recording too, so the other recording that I did on the call with the guest, Michael King. But I do ask people to recommend guests, and I did try to get someone on the podcast who wasn't able to, but the person I asked recommended someone else, and that's the guest now. And it's a great conversation. We talk about leadership. He's very, very interested in leadership that's inclusive, and he creates partnership with people and encourages leaders to create partnerships with employees. So it's not just like a directive leadership model that he's into. And I really appreciate that because some of the best managers or leaders that I've worked under have done exactly that. They've empowered me. And I learned a long time ago, actually, when I was at Pro Flowers years and years ago, 20 years ago, just to age myself, that if you empower other people, you're going to create leaders out of them. And so I really like that aspect of our conversation. We also get into the whole power of sharing your story. Michael shares his story with me on this podcast, which you'll hear about some legal issues he went through. I'll just let him tell it in his own words pretty soon. But I love the redemptive aspect of you taking power from a situation that you were in, whether you put yourself in it or not, by moving on and by making a positive difference in the world. I think that that's just the most important thing I want people to take from this episode is that you can do that and you can lead and you can treat others with respect and you can change your life if you, if you want as well. There, that's a lot. I guess I want people to take a lot from this episode, but I did. Michael's super positive. It was a lot of fun to talk to him and it's a good story. So I hope you enjoy it. Like, subscribe, follow, whatever the platforms let you do. (laughs) They let you do so many different things. If you can write a review, that'd be great. Share your favorite episode with others. Let me know if you have a guest idea. And also just be well. Take care of yourselves. We're still in kind of a difficult time in my opinion. and, And I know I've been feeling that lately. So take care of yourselves and enjoy the show. Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. I've asked a lot of people, hey, can you tell me of anyone you know that would make a great guest? And someone finally did. And so that's how I met Michael King. So Michael King, director and creator of the Communities Project and managing principal of Impact Leadership Training and Coaching, joins me today. And we'll get into what all of that means. So how are you doing, Michael? I am doing well. How are you? Doing doing well, too. Yeah, I just got out of self-isolation today. So after this, I'm heading outside for the first time in a week. 
self isolation. <laughs> wow, did you have a, a scary encounter? Or the track and trace app of the NHS said I was possibly exposed, so I've been in my home for a week. Oh my god! Well, I, I'm glad you're able to get out of the house, and I'm also super glad that the the technology seems to have done what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, so where and so I'm in London, and that's why we have the NHS app. So where are you at today? I am in Everett, Washington, which is about 20 minutes or so north of Seattle. I lived in Seattle for many, many years, and actually, early in the COVID saga, I I relocated up to this up to this the suburbs uh, of Seattle because my children keep getting bigger. And they are, they identify as different genders. And one of them is definitely entitled to a little more space than she was getting in my two bedroom place in Seattle. So (laughs) yeah, when it's north of Seattle, you need a little bit more space when you have growing, growing kids for sure. Oh my gosh. I don't even know if it's big enough now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. And sometimes certain days, I'm sure the house isn't big enough for any of you to be in. Yeah. Many, many days, many days. (laughs) Well, great. Well, thanks for joining me today. I've had a few leadership coaches on or generally coaches who help people with work issues. So I want to talk to you, though, about your views on leadership and what it means to you. So can you first, I guess, get into what impact leadership training and coaching is about? Sure, absolutely. Leadership training and coaching, focusing on everything from sort of emerging leaders. I've had the opportunity to work with nonprofit executive directors predominantly among leaders who are doing work on substance use related issues in their communities. Although the work I do is certainly not limited to that. I have some personal experience as a person in recovery from substance use disorder. So that kind of happens to be the audience where I I find myself navigating the most. But the, the leadership ideas that I sort of work on and promote through the training and coaching work that I do starts off with the idea that leadership is a natural expression, that we don't create leaders, that leadership development isn't about taking somebody who isn't a leader and somehow turning them into one, that that's not what leadership development really is, but that leadership development is really about tapping into something that's already, it's in all of us and figuring out what is it that's blocking us from running out into the world and producing all of the results that we are capable of producing or that we want to be producing. So the work that I do doesn't focus on how do you become a leader? It focuses on what's stopping you from being the leader that you already are. And it focuses on a couple of really core principles that really Mm -hmm. serve as uh, kind of tools to to break out of this cage that we can find ourselves in. And it starts with being responsible for what we're contributing to all the results that we're producing, being self-reflective so we can figure out what it is we're contributing, and then getting feedback from folks because being self-reflective only gets us so far. And finally, speaking to and investing in the leadership of everybody else. If there's a leader in everyone, it can be the the person to whom we speak. And that can be everyone from our, our bosses to our colleagues to the grocery store clerk, right? I mean, that's a, an idea that's applicable across the board in our lives. And when we focus on showing up as an opportunity for everybody else in every conversation, we actually are more successful in getting the results that we want to produce. It's sort of cracks you up the idea that when we stop showing up in our leadership of how do I get everybody around me to do what I want, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, But instead, how can I be an opportunity for everybody? I actually end up getting the things I want more effectively. Mm -hmm. A little bit about kind of the the leadership approach. And I do training work, kind of a one-day leadership training, and then provide coaching for folks who go through that training. And then I also do some workshops on some other specific topics. I have experience as a community organizer. So I do some work around organizing. I talk a little bit about I do a workshop on conflict and on effective storytelling and leadership and developing goals and strategies and tactics. So kind of a big array of work investing in other people. And it's, I, I still find myself uh, pinching myself to this as I, I get to spend my days just like focusing on everybody else and how I can be an opportunity for them. It's, it's incredibly gratifying work. I'm sure. And just seeing the change in people has to be pretty rewarding. Oh, oh my gosh. It just uh, literally, I was telling you before we started recording here that I have had a wall to wall morning and I was just on a coaching call with somebody right before we got in who went through a training I did several months ago, who was sharing about how she'd been through lots of leadership trainings, but this, she had said it didn't, it wasn't just changing how she was showing up in her job, but it was also changing how she was showing up in her life. And what she was talking about was kind of being responsible for the fact that she always finds herself telling stories about Mm -hmm. other people as opposed to just looking at what's actually happening and how she said that as she's realizing that she just has to be responsible for what she's contributing to what's actually happening. And she doesn't have Mm -hmm. to make up and kind of starting to really acknowledge the story that she's telling when she's telling it and how liberating that's been for her and how much more effective she's feeling in her day-to-day grind. And, you know, I get to have, I get to hear that multiple times a week, sometimes in a day. And yeah, I mean, hard not to be grateful when you get that opportunity to hear that from folks. Yeah. And one thing I guess that I want to touch on, I do this kind of some mentor stuff And one of the things is mock interviews. And last night I was just talking to some young women about how, because they they learn leadership and part of the program they're in. But I was talking to them about how they don't have to be in a leadership position in order to be a leader. Mm -hmm. And that being a manager is different than being a leader too. And do you, how how do you feel about me saying that to them? Was I right or should I not say that to them? That's how I feel. Well, I'm always a little bit reluctant to use words like right or wrong because I think that they just come with so much judgment. I would tend to agree with the sentiment that you express, though, and something that comes up a lot actually in the work I do is leadership doesn't necessarily have to relate directly to job title, mm-hmm. s- status, where we sit on the organizational hierarchy or food chain, right? That leadership is really something else. Being a CEO doesn't necessarily mean you're an effective leader. It just means you're a CEO. Mm -hmm. Uh, Frankly, the CEO in the boardroom, uh, when they are at their most effective, are generally looking at everybody else in that boardroom and seeing everyone in that room as a leader. If they are seeing just themselves as the leader and they're they're, they're looking into that space and seeing something else. They're not seeing everybody as a leader. What are they seeing? Are they seeing followers? Are they mm-hmm. seeing minions? Are they seeing, what is it they're seeing? And the truth is maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they're producing some kind of a result with that. And if we are not being effective with the people around us, 
we can ask ourselves this question, how am I speaking to these folks? Am I speaking to you, Robbie, as a leader, or am I speaking to you as something else, right? Mm-hmm. A minion, a little tool to help me get what I want, right? It, it's just not very effective at the end. I will get what I want more effectively yeah. if I speak to everybody around me as if I speak to that leader in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like them having some authority over what they're doing ultimately and their decisions they're making. It's amazing. You know, we want people around us to take responsibility for mm-hmm. things. And if we if we hope for that, we have to actually model responsibility ourselves. And honestly, mm-hmm. like if we are, if we are managing a team and that's part of our job, whatever our job might be, just take a look and see how much more effective you will be with your team when you actually invite them into partnerships, right? Mm -hmm. You don't just delegate tasks, right? Boss said, we got to do this. Ravi, you do this. John, you go do this. Marsha, you do this. That's fine. And it it can work short term, but it's not really a long term investment in what you're Mm -hmm. creating. But if you're inviting your team into partnerships and inviting them into a, a, a leadership culture that's centered around being responsible, it creates an ownership pattern. And probably not surprisingly, we all are more effective when we actually feel a sense of ownership over what we're doing. Mm-hmm. It's just a human trait, I would say. Yeah. So what made you decide, because you could have gone in a lot of directions and starting your own organization what made you go into leadership what did you just see a need or what what brought it to you so i I mentioned at the onset here that i'm I'm in recovery and i got into recovery about eight and a half years ago now and started working in the in kind of a recovery organization advocacy space a little over six years ago and while on that journey i was accepted into a leadership program uh, for actually formerly incarcerated leaders, and I'm formerly incarcerated. And uh, I, I honestly had applied to be part of this program. Didn't know much about it. Didn't honestly think that hard about it. Didn't weigh whether or not I really wanted to do it. Didn't even necessarily expect to get in. And it wouldn't even have been all that heartbroken had I not gotten in because mm-hmm. I was unaware of what I was about to participate in. But I got in. And you know, I had this background. I worked in politics for years. I'd run campaigns. I'm, I've been an executive director of political organization. And needless to say, my ego was, I thought, I thought healthy. And I really wasn't thinking that much about the leadership component of this program. I really was thinking it was, this is a great networking opportunity is mm-hmm. what I told myself. So that was the story I was telling myself entering this space. And I joined this group of 35 of the most powerful individuals I've ever had the pleasure to be in, to share space with in my life. And um, uh, I was introduced to a set of principles by an unbelievably powerful trainer and facilitator who today is a, a dear friend and a mentor. And something about these principles, which are the, the uh, ones that I mentioned before, responsibility, self-reflection, feedback, speaking to other people as leaders, um, just resonated with me really strongly. And I think some of that language was very similar to some things I'd learned in my recovery life. Mm -hmm. And that's why it it just really happened to strike me. 
And I, I really kind of committed myself to giving these principles a shot that I, I wanted to really put them into practice in my life and see what that produced, what types of results it produced. And Robbie, it changed my life. I mean, it didn't just change my work. It changed mm-hmm. my life. And I suddenly started seeing something completely different in the results I was producing. My sense of power as a leader just started to grow in a way that it had never had, like, as opposed to like the kind of, the kind of ego that really masks horrible feelings of inadequacy and continues to grow because it's an ongoing process, a genuine confidence, right? And my relationship to feedback completely shifted as I started to realize that feedback was just feedback and I didn't have to put mm. some meaning onto it. And when I started seeing the leader and people around me and speaking to that and seeing every conversation as an opportunity to invest in other people's leadership, I mean, everything shifted. Like the results I started to see in my life just began to completely shift. And given the, I was in this community of recovery activists this wasn't uh, this wasn't happening in that space and i had had this life changing powerful experience and i just really made the choice that this was what i wanted to contribute like we're we all get the opportunity to contribute something to the worlds that we create and this was just what i after the experience i'd had i really wanted to find a way to contribute these these ideas into this field so uh, I started this initiative that was, you mentioned, was the Communities Project, which was focused mm-hmm. specifically on substance use. Initially, that initiative was through the nonprofit I worked at at the time. That nonprofit had to close its doors. The initiative followed me to another nonprofit. And eventually, I, I opened up uh, my business, which, as you mentioned, is called Impact Leadership Training and Coaching. And the initiative, the Communities Project, has become an initiative of my business. So it's just mm-hmm. a component of my business and I get the chance to contract and work with just some of the most unbelievable organizations. I just did my first in-person training since COVID began a couple of weeks ago. And someone from the organization that I got the pleasure to train said at the end of the day, this experience was like a rebirth for of our nonprofit. These ideas coming mm-hmm. into our organization, it feels like we are reborn in terms of what we can produce individually and as a team. So that's kind of what landed me doing this work was just the desire to try to share this powerful experience I had with others in the hopes that they would have an experience of their own, not Mm -hmm. mere mine necessarily, but to have their own experience with it and then to run out into the world and uh, see what they produced with it. That's, that's great. And it's, I mean, just the fact that too, you went through your experience with substance abuse and with being incarcerated and then still found that there was something else you wanted to do after going through that. Did going through the leadership training or something else also just change how you felt about that and how you could speak about that experience? Because anyone listening and we've all, I would say, not to minimize it, but we've all made mistakes or have things we regret doing. And sometimes they're very, minimal and they tear you apart. And so then when you scale that, how did you build your resilience and was it part of it through that training or what do you think? 
Well, I, I think that when I got into recovery, so I, I mm-hmm. had worked in the political arena, as I mentioned before, for many years. And I eventually I ended up I embezzled a, a large sum of money from my employer, where I was the executive director at the time. And given the position I had, you know, this was all over the front page of the Seattle Times and on the news. So while anonymity is a principle practiced in recovery circles, and it's certainly one that I respect and you know, you won't hear me talk about what recovery community I'm part of, and you won't hear me I, I will respect the traditions of the of the or of the fellowship that I, I participate in. But my personal anonymity as someone who had struggled with alcohol use was wholly mm-hmm. anonymous. The the job I had and the things I did and made it known to the world that I had a problem with alcohol and gambling in my case. So very early on, before I ever found this world, I already had begun to kind of contemplate, well, you know, uh, given the fact that I, I don't get that anyway, um, mm-hmm. you know, what what can I do? Is there a way to take what I did, what I what I did and the consequences of what I did and mm-hmm. use it as an opportunity to invest in or, or be in service to other people, both for personal reasons in that, you know, uh, when I show up in service to somebody, I, I feel good, right? Mm-hmm simple one that I think we've all probably experienced. But also, to me, it, it felt like a way of, of of righting some of the wrongs. You know, I did things that harmed a lot of people and mm-hmm. harmed causes that I had spent my adult life fighting for. When I did what I did, I, I ran our state Senate Democratic uh, Campaign Caucus out here in Washington State, where I live. And, you know, I embezzled $300,000 and we lost the majority in our state Senate that year by one seat. And we lost that Mm. one seat by 73 votes. Mm. So I have to be responsible for that. And I have a strong political viewpoint and I know others do as well. So if you, I have to own my piece of that result. That's just Mm. the way, that's just the way it is. So I can't change the past. I did the things that I did and it had the impact it had but I absolutely can have an influence on how I choose to show up today. So I think in terms of sharing the story, one there, I wasn't, the story was already there. So, you know, I, I don't know how much I really had a choice in it in terms of did that experience kind of contribute to it. I think what the experience contributed was how to tell that story more effectively Mm -hmm. because you know, there's this idea in storytelling and a, a gentleman named Marshall Gans, who is a longtime organizer and who has worked at Harvard for years and does, I, I, I use a lot of his material to convey how to tell effective stories of self. We can tell a story and if it gets an emotional response from somebody, then we know that it's an effective private story. Mm-hmm. But if I share a story and you go, man, I want to go sign up and learn about the communities project. I want to be part of that. I want to go to that training then I know I'm telling an effective public story. And it, I, I think learning how to tell more effective stories was telling the story more effectively absolutely right. came out of that experience. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And thanks for sharing all that. I wonder too, because through your work, you're committing to service in different ways. And I want to talk more about what the Communities Project does too. But just when you were in politics, I mean, there are all different reasons people enter politics. And I think- I've done some activism and some voter registration and campaign volunteering and stuff like that. I've never worked in it formally, but I know 
at least what I tell myself is I'm doing it partly just to serve, right? Because I think it's super important people vote. So I want to register voters. But then there's this other part of me that goes, and I want my side to win. When you were doing your early career, were you already setting that foundation of someone who wanted to serve? Or do you think it was later that you kind of got that? It's a wonderful question. And, and, you know, I actually, when I went to school, when I went away to college, I actually went as a theater major and I grew up doing, yeah, I I grew up doing theater and still love the theater. And, you know, my two great loves in life are are the theater and baseball are my two favorite things in the world to participate, to do for fun. Right. And, but I quickly, it was, it was during the 2000 presidential election and, I really kind of figured out where I landed on the political spectrum. And, and I will, you know, I don't talk too much about my personal politics just because I don't think it necessarily really matters in the context of what I do. I'm interested in investing in all humans, really. I mean, there are certainly causes I wouldn't go invest in for my own ethical reasons. And I certainly wouldn't work on one particular side of the political spectrum. But I also think that people are so much more than the labels we choose to give mm-hmm. them. So, you know, honestly, my first like exposure into politics, I always was a kind of a history nerd going back. I mean, literally being a six year old boy reading books about presidents. I read a book that was co-written by James Carville and Mary Madeline, who Mm. know James Carville had run Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign and Mary Madeline, who is his wife worked for George H.W. Bush in that election. So yeah. it's called All's Fair, Love, War, and Running for President. And it's just kind of a fun book about that election told from both of their perspectives. And I read that book and I just, the work seemed so exciting to, to be on the front lines of something that I felt was so important. And I really do believe very strongly in, you know, the participation we have in, in our political process. And I think a little bit of the influence of that comes from uh, a family where my, my grandparents were both born and raised in Nazi Germany. You know, seeing what happens when that process goes south, I have a bit of a, a corny sense of duty in that I, I believe that old idea or sentiment that decisions are made by those who show up. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I know that I wanted to contribute. I, I knew how important I felt participation in politics was. And I think that a combination of that and the sheer excitement of the work of being on the front lines of something that I thought was so important really did draw me in. I will say I I wasn't someone who was driven into politics because of passion for an issue. I have a viewpoint on every conceivable issue. Um, (laughs) But I wasn't, you know, some folks I, I, you know, will say I I was really interested in education and that got me into politics. So I really was interested in gun policy or healthcare or whatever it was. That wasn't me. I I had a viewpoint on all of them and I worked for the side that I thought best represented my viewpoint. But I wasn't, yeah, I was someone more drawn into the excitement of it. And that kind of kept me, that kept me going through my career. And, and I, I definitely, I, I felt myself invested in the party that I worked for more than the than any one specific issue because I just felt that we all benefited more when the party that I happened to jo- mm-hmm. be a proud member of and work for was in power. Right. What I also know when I look back on my political career, which was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a pretty successful run right mm-hmm. up to the end when I got into trouble and caused a huge mess around me, I often do think about 
how I would have, sh- how differently I would have showed up in that work had mm. some of these leadership ideas been ingrained in me at that time. And I, I will sometimes visualize what it would be like to do some of the work I do now through impact leadership with folks in the political arena. Because I tell you, when I think about leaders today, and I always say in the trainings, like, le- never doubt the effectiveness of being interested. And if we want to Mm. be effective with other individuals, we have to actually be interested in what they have to say. And that includes being interested in people whose beliefs we would fight a lifetime against. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to like them. We don't even really have to respect them, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. We can still be interested in them. And Mm. like dialogue we have today in the political culture where, you know, we get on social media and we just like post something political and then somebody responds about how wrong we are. And next thing we know, we're in a shout, a, an online shouting match and you just sit there. And, and what I think when I read that exchange is how disinterested either side actually is in the other person. So why are you're just yelling into space Mm -hmm. just to be heard? Stop doing that. Who's benefiting from this? Stop. Be interested in each other. And I I talk about this in the leadership training. Do you want to actually persuade somebody? Um, And I I know I'm on a bit of a soapbox moment here. so I'll I'll share a story. A couple of years ago, there was a copy shop. I would always go into to make photocopies before I'd go on the road to do training work. And there was a gentleman there and he, um, must have seen the word addiction somewhere on some photocopy I'd made. And he came up and he was being good customer service man, right? And he asked, have you got everything you need? And I said, yep, thank you for everything. And he said, what do you do for work? And I mentioned that I was doing, I worked for a group that engaged in advocacy on recovery issues. And he he interrupted me and he said, I have to ask you, why should I care about these junkies who are ruining my neighborhood? Now, little did he know, you know, he was talking about me. Right. right? Yeah. Now, obviously, when I hear someone talk like that, it makes my blood boil. And Mm -hmm. I don't really like being called names. Right. Yeah. But rather than getting into a shouting match with him, I was just found myself like interested in how did this person come to this viewpoint? How did this person land on, quote, those junkies ruining my neighborhood? So I just began a dialogue with him. And it was a dialogue that lasted like a year and a half, right up until I really right up until COVID when my travel schedule went down and I would always go to the same copy shop. I would always see the same guy and I would always have a conversation with him. And could I tell you today that he and I shared the same viewpoint on this stuff? No, but I can tell you that he definitely softened. And I think he definitely, his eyes were more open to the possibilities of recovery for people. And my eyes were more open to why people can land on a viewpoint that I so vehemently disagree with. Mm -hmm. And it was all by just being interested in each other. Just Mm -hmm. don't doubt how, how effective we can be with people when we are just interested in them or we don't have to be interested in anybody, but be responsible for the result that produces. Right. Yeah. Right. And I'm definitely someone who does the Facebook thing. I mean, I'm, I have an account warning right now because. <laughs> uh, right. 
I feel like in a way I was effective at insulting someone because they reported me. (laughs) Uh But I've gone and reported people and nothing happens. And I've stopped doing it just because it was harmful to me, if anything. And it isn't going to change anyone. I've gotten in arguments about, and I, I don't care if people don't. Like to me, I'd rather people listen to the podcast and get real information than not. And so like, you know, I've gotten in arguments with anti-vaxxers like online comedy shows. And I just, I won't sit there and tolerate misinformation and I'll listen and I'll ask, but I always ask now. And that's the difference. And I think that's along the lines of what you're saying. I'll ask where they got their information or what is the information they have? Like if they make a blanket statement, okay, can you please give me more details? And at least that I'm trying to understand. And I understand if someone has certain concerns, right? That are valid. And they're, uh, most people's concerns are valid to them anyway. But when someone just says something like, you know, well, we're being microchipped or whatever. I mean, I'm just like, what's the actual information? But if someone says, you know, I don't feel comfortable because I've already had blood clots from birth control, then I can say, okay, I understand that do you have a concern? Cause that is a side effect. You know what I mean? And so it's yeah. just asking where they're coming from and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And then it doesn't usually change someone, but I feel like at least I don't leave the conversation with the almost embarrassment of, of losing my temper. That's usually an outcome or just with the frustration of talking to a wall because I didn't talk to a wall. The wall responded, the person mm-hmm. responded and I had a conversation, but it, takes a lot to learn that. And it certainly took the last four years or five years really, you know, for me, I mean, I'm not going to speak for anyone else, but I know a lot of people I know, you know, you're right. Like that conversation you had with that guy is really important because a lot of things like our experience informs us too, and they don't have experience with something. So they just, that's where their decisions are made, you know, and you do have experience, you know, you're not that thing. Right. Yeah. Well, and again, it's, you know, if the result, that we're hoping to produce is to always get everybody else in the world to agree with us on mm-hmm. all the things. Yeah. G- good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk and let's figure out. Right. But there's something more, and I, I can wax philosophical about this. Like there's something so much deeper than that in terms of the human connections that we build or mm-hmm. don't. Right. And what I do know is that yelling at other people is really never effective. No. And having a dialogue, you know, maybe we're not effective in, you know, maybe we're not effective in, in persuading somebody to look differently this time around. However, maybe we are also opening a door where Mm -hmm. we can show up as an opportunity for that person when the moment does come that they want to hear another viewpoint on it. Maybe Mm -hmm. we can be the ones there and they can actually come to us and have a dialogue because we created that relationship with them as opposed to, Oh, that's the guy who yelled at me on Facebook. I'm not going to that guy. Yeah. So effectiveness isn't always something that I think as leaders, we see immediately in the moment, but, and and again, I want to, you know, just state, you know, unequivocally, I would never sell, go be your values. Don't be anything Mm -hmm. other than your values. But if you want to be effective with other humans, mm-hmm. be interested in other – it's like when people say, oh, I'm not a good – I get this all the time, right? I'm not a good listener. I want to work on my listening and I always tell them, your listening is fine. The problem is you don't care about anybody else. Yeah. 
Because if you cared about them, you would listen to everything they said. Listening's not the problem. The problem is you don't give a you know what about any other p- people. Yeah. Yeah, like right now I could if I if you were talking and I was like typing a bunch of stuff or whatever, obviously yeah. then I'd be like, Oh, I didn't hear you. Well, I heard you fine. I have like, you know, nice headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We all have but, nice headphones on, right? Yeah. But I do think actually this I, I like this discussion because I'm thinking about Two, if I'm going to have a point of view and I want to represent that well, probably yelling at someone or insulting them or calling them stupid because they don't have it is not really like being a leader within even that sphere, right? So if I'm talking to them as a leader, I would definitely do something different. So I think just kind of circling back or bringing it back to what you were talking about earlier, it makes sense. Yeah. And and look, we live in these really difficult times and there's really difficult issues. And we are so, I mean, I could get into a long thing here about American political culture, but I mean, Mm -hmm. we are so tribal. We are so locked in our camps. And I could argue, and, and look, some people might hear this and really think this guy is, you know, man, I I always joke that I think that where I'm going to come at from this is probably going to piss everybody off on both sides, right? But we just don't care about the other side on anything. Mm -hmm. And and both sides are guilty of that. Like that's not a talk about something that isn't partisan. No, we equally hate each other, actually. That's completely (laughs) real, you know? And am I always innocent of that? Of course not. I need things. And, you know, I have family members who – you know, our family members who are completely on the opposite end of every single potential issue. And have I read things that have been posted and thought, my Lord, of course I have. But you know what's been effective 0% of the time in the history of time and humans is telling somebody that they're just wrong about everything they think and believe. Like, <laughs> why? I mean, the only re- it's like if somebody says, I know you're not going to want to hear this, but. Well, if you yeah. know I'm not going to hear it, then why the hell are you telling me? Yeah. It's about you yeah. needing to be heard and speak. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Therapists are great. And I highly recommend them. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. I want to talk about and learn about the Communities Project a little more and what you do with that. Because I think I'll just say, well, I'll just say two things. One, that one reason we met is because it's through our mutual friend, Lynn, who I worked with at Shatterproof, which is an organization as well around substance abuse disorder. Cause I lost my brother over 10 years ago, which I've already shared with you. And so I, one statement you made resonated with me. So before we talk about communities project, I want to talk about this statement because it's kind of how I felt in a certain time as well. So yeah, I guess I'll start with that because I said I had two things to say and now I have one apparently. Then I want to talk about the communities project because there are so many different ways to go at dealing with or helping people with this issue. And I think even 10 years ago, it wasn't seen the same way as it is now with the compassion and the, the approach of not just being punitive, but something you have in an article that you, you said, and you've kind of alluded to this already, but you said, I would be an opportunity for others. I would carve out a path in a world that I didn't know existed at the time. I didn't have the answers, but I knew that I could find the people that did reach out to them and both learn and listen. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you when I lost my brother, I, that I knew something had to change once I got through all the guilt and shame and all that, which you feel as someone who survives someone too. Mm -hmm. 
and then I did find the people and you have become one of the people. And so kind of, can you talk about you saying that and just a little bit more about how you got into the recovery space or yeah. not recovery space, but also helping people? Yeah. Well, and first off, Ravi, let me just say to you just how, you know, 10 years losing a sibling and a loved one. Mm. It's just, I, I, it's a story. I think we all hear way too much. So I'm so yeah. sorry that, for your loss. And I, I think that the loved ones of those who struggle still don't get heard to the extent they need to, because there's a really valuable story there. So I, I really am just sorry that you and your family had to go through that. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of kind of what I wrote, I think that everything we do can be an opportunity. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, um, I just, I, when I went through the things I went through and I went through a very kind of public downfall through my substance use and, and, you know, I, I, I got into recovery in February of 2013 and I went to inpatient treatment and it was when I was in inpatient treatment that the kind of the news story broke. So I actually read about it in the newspaper while I was sitting in treatment. It was a big headline that read Senate Democratic Executive Under Investigation. And then I sat there in the lobby of the treatment center reading all about me and the newspaper um, and it took a while, but like through my first nine months after I got out of treatment and then eight months after that of recovery, I was dealing with, uh, this legal mess mm-hmm. that I had created and that I was responsible for. And somewhere in there, it just kind of became through a combination, I think of self-reflection, but also things that I heard from people I got to know that, and it's a common idea in the recovery community that mm-hmm. maybe my experience could benefit other people. And maybe there was some way to take what I had gone through and use it as a tool to create something better for somebody else or invest in somebody else. Um, and I think I felt a little bit of an obligation to do that as well. Cause when I, when I was incarcerated, I wasn't incarcerated for very long. Obviously racial equity is a huge issue and such an important one that we need to be talking about in our communities right now. And I will take responsibility for the fact that my own understanding or journey with equity, I don't think I had really thought much about it until I was mm-hmm. actually in the criminal justice system. That's where I felt. I really was first truly aware of the extent that my white privilege as the straight cisgender white male that I am even extended into the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Something that, you know, now I can look at and kind of say, well, duh. But at the time was, I mean, was honestly, I, I need to be responsible for the fact that I had not really considered that. And here I was sentenced to two years really one in one out because of the sentence I got for embezzling $300,000. I mean, talk about privilege. And I think Mm -hmm. as a result of that, coupled with the fact that when I was incarcerated, I was, I would talk to all these men and like 90% of them were in there for something related to substance use. Like, Mm -hmm. Whether it was, you know, not just using drugs or dealing drugs or whatever else, but whatever crime they committed, like inevitably substances were like a step away from the actual crime, like sticking up 7-Elevens to get more money to buy more drugs. I maybe had an intellectual understanding that 
the, the prison system in America is like the largest publicly funded treatment center we have. But until I was actually in it, I wasn't aware of just how deep that was. And I think I felt, given the privilege that I have, given the background that I came from, and given the – I just – I think I felt a certain degree of obligation to Mm -hmm. figure out how how could I give back to – a greater community. You know what I mean? And and I think, I think I felt like if I get out of here and I go find some entry level job at a company that will take me in given my felony conviction. And I try to rebuild from there and I kind of hide in a back corner office for the rest of my life. I think I I felt like it was a cop out Mm -hmm. and I, I was not interested in, cop-outs. And, and I, I really genuinely, I, I felt like it would be irresponsible to do that. So when I say carving out that opportunity as a way to benefit others, I think that's where it really, it began to crystallize what that could look like. And the communities project, you know, it's the same leadership focus that I do through my business, right? Through impact mm-hmm. leadership. But the communities project specifically has as its aim the goal or the mission of saving a million lives from substance use related deaths over the next two decades. And to do so by investing in the leadership of people who are on the front lines of this issue, whether it's recovery advocates or prevention leaders or harm reduction leaders or public agency leaders or family advocates. If you are doing something in your community to address substance use I'm interested in investing in your leadership. The thought or the change theory really being that if we invest in an individual's leadership, Mm -hmm. they begin to produce more. So if they're participating or running a program that is saving lives, if we invest in their leadership, they're putting more into that program, we're saving more lives. And a little bit of my personal, what kind of drove me here was not just my experience in this leadership program that I mentioned before, but it was really getting involved in the space. And I began to, I went to work in 2015 for a national group in the addiction space. And we had a big kind of launch rally in Washington, DC for the event. And I was given the opportunity to kind of organize and try to drive turnout from like 35 of the 50 states, basically, because I was the only person who worked for this effort who wasn't on the East Coast or in the Midwest. Mm. So everything that didn't touch the Atlantic Ocean was kind of given to me. And what that meant was I got to start building these relationships with leaders from across the country and relationships, I've, I many of which I really continue to hold dear to my heart today. And I just, what I felt like I was noticing was these people run amazing programs. It's not like we don't know what programs are effective because mm-hmm. we see it everywhere. But who's investing in these people? Like right. one thing that every single program has in common is a person and people who are running it, who are actually administering it on the ground. And frankly, my passion is a little more in people than programs. Like I, I don't necessarily need to know all the details of a specific initiative or program or how it works or, but I'm really interested in you and I'm really interested in what's driving you and what makes you tick. And I would like 
to invest in you so that you can go run that program as effectively as possible. And in turn, you start saving millions and millions of lives because that's what Mm -hmm. we can do. So the communities project is really structured where the the mission is to save lives. But the way I choose, I want to do that is by investing in, in people, investing in people, investing in their Mm -hmm. leadership through training workshops and coaching. Awesome. Well, it's really cool. And thanks again for just, you know, being open and walking through all of this. Cause I think it's, I think what I like is just to your consideration of the individual and how that became your purpose is helping other individuals. And so is there anything we didn't cover that you want to cover? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm always game to talk about baseball or, you know, or the, like I said, if you have another topic, but no, I, I think the one thing I'm, you know, I'm also really, I'm, see, I'm jealous of your comedy mm-hmm. career, right? Because my oh, other yeah. passion is comedy mm-hmm. and I want to be responsible for not for writing out lots of bits and not yet ever committing myself, I should say, to actually trying comedy. Comedy is my favorite art form. It, like it, I love it. So I'm yeah. in awe of people like you who get up and do it. I think it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So I'm going to name that. Well, cool. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, if you ever want to talk about that, I'm definitely happy to. In a parallel way, like I think people sharing their stories is important, which is one reason I have this podcast. And one thing I encourage people to do, even when I'm doing coaching of just mock interviews and stuff, it's like you own your story so you can say it and you can say that same thing, but evoke a different emotion, right? Mm -hmm. But also with comedy, I think it's like if someone feels like they need to do something artistic and it's something they really want to do, I think they should at least try it. So that's just, I really do. Because I mean, yeah, the worst thing is you bomb, but at least you did it, you know, and we all do it anyway. So you're really a comedian if you do that, <laughs> you know, well, I've experienced bombing. So yeah. that's the, I have no fear of bombing. No, in, in all seriousness, though, I, I actually it's really wonderful to have the opportunity to, to talk. And I think I just for anybody, you know, it, take a look at the results you're producing and figure out how effective you think you're being. And if if you are interested in putting some principles into play to increase that level of effectiveness and really have high impact on folks. I'm like, then I'm interested in talking to you and it like, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter if you are a substance use advocate or you're passionate about immigration policy or, or building community parks. Like I'm all for all the things, right? Like go, I just think people, I was just watching a video this morning. Someone very dear to me has a child with autism Mm -hmm. and I was just watching a video that they posted on their social media channel this morning of another parent of a child with autism sharing their experience. And I, I, my, I was getting emotional watching this and I would even watched this video before and something about it today was Mm -hmm. really helping with me. And the reason was, you know, we can all be so cynical in this really complex, difficult world that we that we are in. And the truth is so many difficult, gut-wrenching things that happen in this world are a result of us, of humans. Mm-hmm. But so much brilliance and beauty and passion and is it all it comes from us too. Yeah. And we're all capable of that. So if you're interested in that conversation, then I'm interested in you and I want to have that conversation. So I just end by saying that. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks. And then I guess, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things and sometimes I rethink this question, but something always comes out of it. So 
Do you have any advice or mantra that you want to share, like other than everything you've been talking about? Well, I don't really believe in advice. So I don't really, I, I really try to shy away from giving advice unless it's incredibly specifically asked for it. Even then, I don't really like to give it. But uh, just everyone is so much bigger than they often think they are. Be big. Hmm. Go cool. be big. Nice. All right, cool. So then I have these last five questions called the fun five. The first one, what's the oldest t-shirt you have and still wear? The oldest t-shirt I have and still wear. I'm happy to say it's, if you'd asked me this at another time, it would have been embarrassingly old. I don't think it's embarrassingly old now. I actually have a Boston Red Sox shirt that is probably a decade plus old that is like the perfect lounge around the house or like go for a sweaty walk and I don't care what people around me think shirt that I love so much that I will never I don't think I'll ever relinquish awesome okay cool yeah and I mean I I have a 20 year old shirt so I don't you know and some of them can't be called shirts I mean (laughs) all right so if every day was Groundhog's Day like it has felt a lot in the last like year and a half what song would you have your alarm clock set to play in the morning Oh God! If every day, well, so it's a, it's a it's a that's a difficult question because what song I'd want to wake up to is not necessarily a favorite song, right? Yeah, It'd probably be one to like get me up out of bed, like something really kind of to shoot me awake. So I recently I'm a huge fan of, and I've been through a recent like Nirvana kick. Okay. So I think, and but not like one of their more popular so like something like. Nirvana's Serve the Servants or Scentless Apprentice, something that has like a really loud that would shoot me out of bed, I think. Okay. Like something cool. that really rattles you right into the day. Yeah, perfect. All right. Yeah, and it's tricky because if you hear it every day, you could end up hating it. So you don't want to pick your favorite, favorite song anyway. Absolutely. All right. Coffee or tea or neither? Coffee, copious amounts of coffee, embarrassing, embarrassing amounts of coffee. <laughs> cool. And do you take it any certain way? A little bit of cream. Sometimes I'll spoil myself with sugar, but I try not to eat too much sugar. But um, <laughs> I release a little bit of cream and dark right. rum has to be strong. All right, cool. Well, yeah, and you've been in a coffee place too, so absolutely. Can you think of a time you like laughed so hard you cried or couldn't stop, or something that just makes you kind of lose it in that way? Oh God! Well, I said I love comedy. I yes, there was, and I'll say it's a comedian who has gotten himself into hot water for things he's done in his life. But I, I still, he's a brilliant comic, uh, Is was Louis C.K. I knew it was Louis. I was going to guess that, yep. but I didn't want to step on you. But yes. And he, so I had never really, when I was very early in recovery, like two or three months into recovery, I was going through my legal stuff. I was going through a divorce. I didn't see my, I was missing my daughter. My ex-wife was pregnant with her son. I was just in a really tough place. Not a lot to laugh about. And after one night I was hanging out with a bunch of recovery friends and somebody put on his live at the beacon theater special. And I, I had never, I don't know why, but I had never really been, I hadn't really exposed myself to him that much. And here he, here I was going through divorce, parent and all these things. Here he was this like single dad. And I had this time in my life where there was just not a lot to laugh about. And I, I just, I, I was on the floor laughing so hard. And there are still so many segments of that special where he talked about like, how being a parent, the hardest thing about it is being boring. Like the just are some of the most brilliant bits I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I have like a real soft spot, you know, we'll, we'll place judgment on his behavior in another, yeah. in another place. But 
Yes. That was yeah. I actually, I was probably, I was at one of those shows because I saw him a couple times when I lived in New York and during that uh-huh. time and he would, and I mean, no, I was a big fan and I think of course, but maybe is still one of my favorite. Oh. Right. And then also, yeah. So it's a hard one. It's a tough one because yeah, I mean, obviously problematic, but he had some really good bits. So I get it. Irresponsible for all the results we produced, the brilliant and the horrible. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And last one, I don't know what happened to my voice. Just who inspires you right now? Oh God. Who inspires me right now? I mentioned when I went into that leadership program, there was a facilitator who, and I'll, I'll, I'll get in trouble. He's going to get mad at me, but a gentleman named David Mensa, who I was the exposed me to these leadership ideas that we're talking about here. And, you know, honestly, in my adult life, and I'm talking about parents and other amazing people I've met, there has never been, there has never been another human in my life who had a bigger impact on my feelings about how I was showing up in my life and what I wanted to do with it and what I could be and present as an opportunity for other people. And, uh, I, I love him deeply and, and he just had a bigger influence on me than anybody else. And he always inspires me. He always inspires me. So he is, I'd have to put him there. Awesome. Cool. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Can you just state maybe where you want people to look for you if they want to look for you? And I'll have it in the show notes, of course. If folks want to learn more, the the training and coaching business, Impact Leadership Training and Coaching, the website is impactleadershipcoaching.org impactleadershipcoaching.org, or if people want to just directly check out the Communities Project, it's just communitiesproject.org, C-O, I'm not going to try to spell communities because I will to- I'll do a Dan Quayle moment and I'll totally <laughs> misspell it, communitiesproject.org. <laughs> cool. All right. And I'll have, I'll have it spelled out too. So Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate you chatting with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been awesome. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RobbieHasSaid.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm.